And just like that, we're back. It is Tuesday, May 18th. Yeah, it's May 18th. Confirm that. The Year of Our Lord 2021. Late Kick Extra podcast. Probably listening to it a little bit later than you normally do. It's because we had a really, really busy morning. A lot of meetings and such. It was a net positive. I'll share with you what I can in just a second. A lot of this is hashtag confidential. But what I can guarantee you is the audio will never sound better because I'm in the 24-7 sports studio. I'm all by myself actually doing the podcast shirtless or as close to it as you can possibly get in an office setting. So anyway, enough with the partial nudity. Here's how you get in touch and here's how you submit a question. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at LateKickJosh, Twitter at LateKickJosh. And I just want to tell you, it warms my heart to no end. When I log on after a show, we get off the air Late Kick Live or after I release a podcast and I start seeing those screenshots in your Instagram stories or I see tweets, you know, confirming basically that you've been watching or listening to the show. I try and retweet or share as many of those as I can. But like I've told you before, our podcast numbers, I just checked this yesterday before I recorded, they are up month over month, a thousand downloads per episode. It's the middle of May, guys. Everyone in our industry refers to this as the absolute no man's land. It is the dead season, allegedly, for college football. Our audience is growing. And it's not supposed to be growing. The reason, part one, is because we do not believe in the off-season. And part two is because you have taken it upon yourself. And I thank you. I am eternally grateful. I thank you for taking it upon yourself to be our marketing department. We don't spend money to advertise this show anywhere. We could never replace what you give me for free with a bunch of advertising dollars and marketing campaigns, and it wouldn't feel authentic anyway. So I'd much rather do it the way you guys are allowing me to do it. But like I said, you are allowing it. So thank you so much. All right, let's roll into the podcast this morning because we got some really good questions here. I'm going to start it off with Kenny. Kenny said, can in-practice repetition affect game time decisions and create biases, which I'm 85% sure is the plural of bias, among offensive play calls? Okay, so basically, can what you see in practice influence your game time decision making? I think the answer to that is yes, Kenny, but Kenny goes further. What I mean, he says, is if you've got a lackadaisical defense in practice and some of the things you're repping offensively work in practice, can you put yourself in a bad situation if they may not work in the game, but you keep calling them because they worked in practice? Kenny, this happens. This happens a lot, and it can happen really across a multitude of different position groups, let's say. So the one thing that I've heard coaches talk about more and more is the inability to simulate physicality in practice. You've had practice time taken away from you. You've also had full padded practices taken away from you. You've had the ability to simulate physicality a lot in the past, kind of stripped down, not fully taken away, but stripped down. All you have to do is go ask someone who played college football for like Pat Dye, let's say in 1986. You ask them about those Auburn practices. Anybody. It's not just exclusive to one person. The, the softest practices in America in 1987 were more physical and violent than pretty much anyone who's doing it at any level today. That's just the way the game has evolved. It's been out of necessity. I'm, I'm all for keeping guys safe, and I'm all for limiting unnecessary impact to the head. I understand why we have to do it that way. But because of that, Kenny, yeah, I think that does happen a lot of times. It does happen. You can look at a spring game, for example, because quarterbacks are not getting tackled in practice. Even when they go live – Everybody else is live, but those quarterbacks have those no-contact jerseys on, and it's like you see in a spring game. So, Kitty, imagine this. Imagine you're a full RPO spread-based passing team, and you're going to throw it to a 65-35 clip to the amount you run. So 65-35 or 70-30 pass-run ratio, and that exists out there these days, and it has existed for a while. If you'd watched the Big 12, now it's kind of proliferated everywhere, and I've used that word too much this month, so we're going to back off of it. So, beep, beep. All right, it is spread. 
like wildfire in college football. Well, Kenny, think about being in practice. How can you know when your quarterback would have been sacked? Because right now, the way they simulate it in a spring game, obviously, is if the quarterback gets touched, he's down. We blow the play dead. Well, what if you have a guy like Joe Burrow? And he's just a recent example, but a guy who is just incredible at making things happen when plays break down, making things happen improv style, out of the pocket, on the run. Think about how many times Joe Burrow was touched in 2019 and ended up completing a pass for a forward game. I mean, in some cases, huge plays. In some cases, LSU's biggest plays came on broken plays in the pocket where the pocket breaks down. Joe Burrow probably gets a hand on his shoulder, hand on his hip. Guy grazes his back, but he doesn't go down. Well, think about being the LSU offensive brain trust. Now, in this case, it doesn't work out the way you're suggesting, Kenny, because it ends up working out for them. They're probably wondering, will it work out? And then they get it validated that it will work out. But what you're talking about, Kenny, is what if stuff is working in practice and it's really only working because your defense can't stop it. Well, that's a whole different set of problems, and here is where I think that shows up. Where I think that shows up a lot is maybe down in the red zone when the field shrinks. I think uh, Steve Sarkeesian actually does this really well. You watch his offense last year with Alabama. Look at the national championship game. Look at how they handled Ohio State, and look at how they used Devontae Smith. I, I don't know that people appreciate – some of you football folks out there listening, you probably appreciate it more than the casual viewer of – how high you have to be executing, what level you have to be executing to be able to pull off the margins that Alabama and Devontae Smith do on those plays where you see him go pre-snap motion. In some cases, they went double back motion. And basically, they have repped that so many times in practice. And what they're doing is they're getting a look and they're seeing, okay, well, first off, you're going to indicate if it's man or zone or if it's pattern match or zone. You can indicate a lot pre-snap just by putting a guy in motion, which is why they do it most of the time. But Devontae Smith, you know, he'll start out there in the slot or maybe out wide, and he'll come in motion and come to the mesh point and then go right back the opposite way. And if you looked in the national championship game, all Alabama had done is rep that so many times in practice against, let's say, a corner or a linebacker of comparable speed and athletic ability to the one they think will cover Devontae Smith in the game for Ohio State. And they've had everyone go full speed, and they have seen that if we run this right, we do not think their guy can beat Devontae Smith back to the corner. They cannot maintain proper leverage on him, and if our guys execute at the degree they're supposed to, this will be a touchdown. And it worked out. It worked out a couple of times. You also saw him go all the way in motion across the length of the field and just flat out beat Sean Way to the other corner. I mean, that's the stuff that they were doing, but I want you to think about the insane level of execution that it takes. Because you may see that happen in practice, but then also, let's say you get to the game, and whereas you thought an outside backer would be covering that guy in motion in that situation, a safety walks down and does it. And then you got, instead of a 4-6 guy, you got a 4-4-8 guy covering him. Do you understand what that difference makes? What that difference really makes is this. But really what that difference makes is someone striding and not being able to tackle you or they're fully extended in the air versus being able to get two hands on your back and push you out of bounds. What does it count on, though? What it counts on is everything working fluidly. So quarterback's got to take the snap fluidly. Quarterback has got to have a perfect release. Quarterback has got to hit that receiver in stride if it's, let's say, a dump pass. Or that wide receiver has got to not have to break stride if it's a quick snap, handoff, jet sweep, even though it technically counts as a pass the way they run it most of the time. If there's a hitch in any of that, it's the difference between you beating someone to the corner, you hit that pylon, touchdown, versus them waiting on you there, and you getting pushed backwards, one-yard loss, it is third and goal from the seven. So, Kenny, when you consider how small the margins are in some of these plays, when you're playing football at the highest level, 
against the best teams. The margins are so small. If you watch a lot of these big-time teams, when they break plays, look at how close a guy came to making a tackle. It could end up being a 30-yard gain. Look how close they came. Look at how perfectly a running back had to crease a seam. Look at how close it was to just totally breaking down. Those are the margins we're talking about here. So, yes, when you simulate something during practice, Kenny, they're not putting anything in the game plan that they don't think is going to work. I mean, at the highest levels now, Texas A&M is not putting anything in the game plan against Arkansas that they doubt will work. But what if all of a sudden you go into the locker room at the half, you got nine points on the board, you have yet to find the end zone. Well, obviously some stuff that you thought was going to work in practice has not worked out to the degree you thought it could in the game. It happens all the time. My question, I think, Kenny, would be, how do you limit it? You know, how do you cut down on that? Because I don't think any coach, or let's say rarely, does a coach get to the post-game press conference and get injected with truth serum and tell the assembled media there, everything worked like it should have today. That, that's never. That's never. Even if they're being honest with you, that's never what they say. But let me tell you, the loneliest and most isolated feeling as a coach out there, any coach listening knows exactly what I'm about to say is true. You'll nod your head before I finish the sentence. The worst place you could ever be is not just losing a game. You're going to lose games. No one ever goes undefeated their entire career. Sometimes you lose a game because you put your players in perfect position and they just couldn't execute. Okay, You can live with that. The physical mistakes you can live with, but you're never happy with them. Mental mistakes are less acceptable, but here's the worst feeling for a coach. When you get in that Sunday film review and you guys are sitting around, lights are down, you got a dip cup in your hand or whatever you do, I don't care, drink Gatorade, but you're watching that film and you're coming to the realization play by play, frame by frame, our kids didn't have a chance because we didn't put them in position to succeed. Now that is a terrible, lonely island to be on. And that's why when you look at how many hours coaches work and how often they're at the office sun up to sundown, that's why. It's to avoid those Sunday isolation feelings of, man, I cannot believe it. We did not ever give our kids a chance to succeed because what we told them to trust in and buy into and what we told them would work didn't work. They trusted us. They bought in. They're where we told them to be, and it didn't pay off. Now, that's a bad feeling, and so that's what you're trying to avoid. All right, let's go to Thomas next. He says, what impact does the previous week's game have on the next game on the schedule? My South Carolina Gamecocks will have a bye before Florida while the Gators face Georgia. It's a good note, actually. I didn't realize that. He said, surely that game could be an upset alert or at least on the upset monitor. This is a really good question, Thomas. I remember famously, I think I told this story like a month ago. I've picked Alabama to lose two games in the regular season or I think period. I've picked them to lose two games in the past decade that I can remember. And uh, I, I, I'm two for two. I haven't picked all their losses, but the two times I picked them to lose, they did lose. One of them was the 2019 Iron Bowl. That's when Mac Jones threw two very freakish picks down inside the red zone. I think both times they were pick sixes. They lost that game. They were a three-point favorite. But they also lost as a two-touchdown favorite. Does anyone remember 2012? Johnny Manziel and the Texas A&M Aggies. So here's what happened. Bama goes and plays this thriller. It was that game at LSU where they had the screen pass to TJ Yeldon in the final minute, and it was highly emotional. And I realized shortly after that game, you're kind of sitting there doing inventory of what you just witnessed, and then you said, hold up, who do they have next week? Man, that's going to be tough. Oh, they're playing A&M. Oh, man, that's that Johnny Menzel cat. Well, let's see how they did today. Oh, Texas A&M didn't play today. They were off. They were sitting there with their feet propped up watching this game like I was. And I decided right then and there, I think I'm going to pick A&M to win. And they sure did. Now, Alabama went on to win a national championship that year, so they didn't really care. But they still remember that game, and I still remember that game. Now, that's anecdotal, Thomas, because you could also go find 
half a dozen other examples, probably with Alabama or pick any other team where the schedule dynamics said one thing and it turned out to be something totally different. Listen, if you're trying to do this in the betting world, I would advise you don't use this as your ammunition. Now, if you have a game you already like and then you look and say, oh, and the scheduling dynamic supports my pick. Okay, if you want to do confirmation bias, that's cool. What I very, very strongly discourage you from doing is saying, I'm going to bet this team minus four because they played a game last week, whereas the other team didn't. They were off. There is nothing you just said that an odds maker didn't know before the season began and had already long since cooked into that point spread. So you're not gaining the edge there that you think you are. You don't know anything that, that the person who made that line and is allowing you to bet it didn't already know. But I do still think if we're just looking from, from a broad perspective, like we are right now, we're still a couple of months, three months, whatever it is from the season, Thomas, I pointed out with Kentucky the other night a string, not just one game, but an entire string of games that they play in the early to midpoint of their season that I think we could see this come into play with. Now, I want to read you the string of games they're going to play just off the top. This sounds like a nightmare for Kentucky. Kentucky plays at South Carolina versus Florida versus LSU at Georgia. Four games in a row. That is week four, five, six, and seven. Okay. Now, that sounds tough, and it is tough. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. But you got to look past the surface, and you got to ask yourself, do the scheduling dynamics come into play here? They do. With every one of these games, they do. I went over this the other night. Quickly, I'll give it to you again. So they go to South Carolina. This is Kentucky's schedule. They go to South Carolina in week four. In week three, South Carolina plays at Georgia. So that's what the Gamecocks have the week before. Then in week five, Kentucky is home. Florida comes into town. The Gators play Alabama and Tennessee the two weeks consecutively before they go play Kentucky. Uh, some of you would call that a double letdown spot. Whatever you want to call it, that's fine. We move on. LSU comes in there the next week. LSU plays Auburn the week before that, and they're looking ahead to Florida the week after that. And in week seven, Kentucky goes to Georgia. Georgia will be coming off a trip to Auburn. They play at Jordan-Hare Stadium the week before. And so you may look at that string and say, oh, it's one right after the other for Kentucky. That's true. They are unlikely to be favored. They may be favored against Carolina, but they won't be favored against Florida, LSU, or Georgia. But they'll have a puncher's chance, number one, if their offense gels a little bit quicker than people think it will. I tend to agree with that assessment. And number two, if those scheduling dynamics come into play. Let's just see. So, Thomas, I think it's a case-by-case. Case. Now, overall, I don't think there's ever been a period in the history of football where people have been more keenly aware of this factor. Coaches are aware of it, assistant coaches, players, they're all aware of it. There's never been more information on the game. There, there have never been more voices in the game. And so everyone talks about this to some degree, and more people hear it now than they ever have before. So what I'm saying is, whereas it used to be this stuff kind of snuck up on you, none of this is going to sneak up on you. Keep in mind, like I just said to start the show, right now you're probably listening to this either May 18th or May 19th. They don't play some of these games for Kentucky. They don't play some of those games until September and October, and we're already talking about it. So that's not going to sneak up on anyone. Therefore, you'll find sometimes those trap games or those letdown games, basically the ones you circled in Sharpie on your printout grid helmet schedule, those aren't the ones where it happens. It's just these random games that you didn't even think to circle. Those are the ones. Those have become the new letdown. Those have become the new look ahead. One more thing to think about here before we move on from this question is how do you know when to attribute a loss to a letdown and attribute an upset to a letdown versus so-and-so was just the better team? 
you know, that happens sometimes too. So this stuff does matter, Thomas. It is taken into account when a line is generated for a game. I just think it's very tough case by case to quantify what value it had. What value is it going to have on an outcome of Kentucky versus Georgia that Georgia played at Auburn the week before? I don't know. I'm just saying, I think it does matter. I don't know how to quantify it. Rolling right along here, Jude is up next. He said, what are the most important instincts and intangibles a championship coach needs to have? How does a coach transition a program from occasionally competing for titles to consistently competing for them? And which coaches do you see today that have those qualities? I don't think it's hard to spot the ones that have them. Dabo's got them. I think Ryan Day's got them. A lot of you have been slow to buy into Ryan Day. And I guess if you're slow to buy into him, it has to be that you have to see a coach win a championship or have a five-year extended run where he's run the program himself for five years and he couldn't possibly be riding a wave of momentum that was already built up for him. I, I understand the Larry Coker metaphors. I understand the Les Miles metaphors. But, you know, Les Miles ended up sustaining a, a pretty good program down there. It turns out it wasn't quite as good beneath the surface as we thought it was. But I understand what you're saying. I think Ryan Day is dynamite. So I think he's legit. So I'm putting him there. Saban's, of course, in his own league. Lincoln Riley's there. Kirby's there. And then you go beneath the surface. Matt Campbell, of course, there. I think more fun may be asking the questions out of the new coaches at big-time programs, which ones will end up fitting this description. Could Manny Diaz and Mike Norvell, for instance, down the road fit this description? Will Mario Cristobal at Oregon fit this description long-term? What if Herm Edwards ends up being this at Arizona State long-term? Chris Kleiman at Kansas State, just to kind of pick one that's a little bit more off the radar. And they are off the radar doing some pretty good things. They got a solid crew coming back this year, too. So you look around, you can find them at the G5 level, too. But the most important characteristic by 10 miles is leadership. That's it. It's one of those things that's so easy to talk about, but it's so hard to bottle up. So few people are really capable of leading other people. You know, that's why I'm not interested all that much in listening to assistant coaches criticize head coaches off the record. I'm not interested in it. You have no clue. You have a fraction of a clue what goes into being a head coach, being the leader of an organization. You, you probably are in an office setting right now, and you may have complete and utter disdain for the person who leads your organization. And look, I've had good bosses and bad bosses like the rest of you. I'm not saying they're all pure as the driven snow. But what I am saying is I stop short of questioning their methodology or their day-to-day handling of the organization because you see the tip of the iceberg. The leader sees the whole thing. They know what's beneath the surface. They're privy to information that, for obvious reasons, you are not privy to. A head coach, likewise, deals with the entire iceberg. The assistant coaches deal with the tip of it. If you're an offensive coordinator, that is a high-level job. If you're the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma, you got a whole lot on your plate, but it's still just an appetizer in comparison to what Lincoln Riley has on his plate. When you screw up, the offense screws up. If Lincoln Riley screws up in a big way, number one, he screws Oklahoma that entire fan base, it leads SportsCenter. It's on the front page of 247sports.com, cbssports.com. It's just a much bigger perch. It's a lot higher up. So when you fall at that level, it goes splat. It doesn't go bounce. But I didn't even refer to anyone else. Think about everything I just said there. So far, it's just selfish. So far, I'm talking about leadership in a sense of just making sure you don't screw up. But then once you got yourself in order and once you're making sure you're doing what you need to do personally and hopefully you're keeping your family life in order, then you got to worry about a dozen other people, five dozen other people, 300 other people. How big is the organization we're talking about? And so it's the ability to lead. What makes Alabama great is they have a lot of good people working there. They're at the cutting edge of everything, 
But like I told you in a completely different context a couple of weeks ago, whether it's a player, like listening to Najee Harris, or on the rare occasion you get to talk to their assistant coaches when you listen to them, do you ever actually stop and just turn everything off and shut up and listen to those people talk? They all sound like Nick Saban. Every single one of them. Everyone associated with the program, they talk just like him. Can you fathom how hard that is to do? I think I used the example uh, in a previous podcast of if you're a dad and you got a couple of teenage kids, just think about how hard it would be to make them walk, talk, and act just like you and think just like you. How hard would that be? And then multiply that infinitely because you got a bunch of kids that age who are supremely talented. They're the best in the world at what they do. Some of them have been praised and coddled at every turn growing up. And then you've also got in the room massive coaching egos, a lot of them that think they should be head coaches already, and you're trying to get them all to sing the same tune. Your nutritionist, just like your defensive coordinator, just like your starting left tackle, you've got to be so good as a leader that they buy into you to the degree where they sound like you and they think like you and they carry themselves the way you want them to without you ever even having to be watching them or have a surveillance camera on them. That's what makes up the best. That's the characteristic. And I don't exactly know how to sum it up. I just know you, much like me, you've been around people and maybe they're in a leadership position that pretty much everyone knows they got handed to them. They don't deserve it. And you guys wouldn't stop to help them if it was pouring down rain and they had a flat tire on the side of the road. But then you've been around other leadership position folks and you'd run through a brick wall for them. You would go above and beyond even what you would do if you ran your own business because you're so terrified of letting them down that you refuse to fail. You know, if it was just up to you, you'd lay in bed today and you'd just call in sick and not even go to work if it was your business. But because it's them, you feel more accountable to them than yourself. You're more worried about letting them down than you are letting yourself down because you know you're probably dealing with someone who would not ask you to do anything they're not willing to do themselves. And to draw it back to a football parallel here, we did a segment on this. I keep looking in the past because we've talked about this recently a lot. But I did a segment a couple of weeks ago, probably like a month ago, about how what they see at that particular program in Alabama, the way that you can validate that, the way you know that guy, the leader there, Nick Saban's not going to ask me to do anything he doesn't want to do, is because he himself completely reinvented his program and completely reinvented himself as a head coach and did things that he didn't really want to do. Nick Saban doesn't want to have a wide-open offense. That's never what he wants to do. When he originally got to Bama, he built the team the way he really wanted it, which was just a boulder that rolls downhill on everyone. That's what he really wants. He didn't want to be the fighter jet. Jets need maintenance, man. So many things can go wrong. You can get a bird sucked in one of the engines. You can have your pilot not show up for work, and whomst amongst us hasn't been there, where we have a fighter jet ready to go on the runway and we can't find a pilot for it. But with the boulder, it doesn't matter. Boulder is lifeless. It's emotionless. It doesn't rely on any one hinge piece. It just rolls down the hill. Well, Nick Saban didn't want to make that move, but he looked around. He gave his famous, is this what you want football to be, quote, and people said yes, or he just interpreted their non-answer to be an answer, and that was yes, and he changed everything. And So if I'm looking at it and I'm saying, wow, man, Nick Saban, with much bigger stakes on the line, changed everything. He's the most successful guy doing it today, and he changed everything. So if he's willing to do that, I'm going to be more than willing to do whatever he asks me to do. All right, moving on, a lot of you asked questions about scheduling. You saw that special we did on Late Kick Live. It was Sunday night. That was fun, and I don't think I'm done with that. To be honest, I think I should have made it a series instead of just one segment. So there's a way to go back and reverse engineer that. But a lot of you ask, aside from the games I picked, what are the other games? What are some big games that I'd really love to go to if I could be in two places at once? Look, I'm not the one who should answer this. You guys should, and we'll do it right after this. So too many of you to name were asking about scheduling, and to some degree or another, you asked about 
games other than the ones we picked. So we did the first six weeks of the season the other night. And what I said is, I go to a game every week. Since we're back to normal now, I'll be at a game every week somewhere. Now, normally, it's going to be the biggest game. I just get to pick. That's the life we get to live here, by the way. Just pick the biggest college football game. Tell your boss. They get you there. You're good to go. Then come back and do a show Sunday night and call it work. Yes, that's the lifestyle. So anyway, what we did was I said, we got to pick the first six weeks of the year. After that, we got to reassess, see who's good that we thought would be good, see who's not good that we thought would be good. And so I picked Georgia versus Clemson in week one, Oregon at Ohio State in week two. Bama at Florida in week three, Notre Dame versus Wisconsin, that's in Chicago, in week four, Auburn at LSU in week five, and Bama at A&M in week six. But there are so many other games here. That week six is loaded, so there are so many other games that I really want to get to. This is the most maddening aspect of this, knowing you can only be in one place at one time, and there's so many games you want to get to. I'm going to tell you one of them right off the bat that stands out is in week two, Iowa plays at Iowa State. I want to go there so bad, not just because I love Iowa State and not just because I want to be there for the rivalry game, because that's a difference. From where I grew up in the South, most of the rivalry games are later in the year until they recently redid the schedule. But we were used to wait until later in the year. Well, in Iowa, they do it in like week two, and they're doing it in week two this year. And think about this. Both of those teams are top 15 caliber teams this year. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see some polls rake them, you know, top 13, top 10. We'll see where the JP poll has them ranked. It's another feature coming this year, by the way, so bookmark that. But I cannot believe that I may have to forego that one. But how do you miss Oregon at Ohio State? I mean, that's a once-in-a-generation matchup. Those teams just don't play, whereas Iowa and Iowa State do play every year, but yet you don't know if you're going to be able to see those kinds of stakes. Texas plays at Arkansas that week, too. And the goal here, like I spelled out Sunday night, it's not just find the biggest game. That's not always what it is. What you're trying to do is you're trying to limit the regret. So what you are trying to limit is going to a game where, yes, it's high profile, but it ends up being 45 to 10. So let's say Ohio State were to beat Oregon 45 to 10. And about the time you're headed home, you're turning on the TV or you're checking your phone and you're seeing Iowa and Iowa State went to overtime that day and Arkansas shocked Texas 28-27 on a last-second field goal. That's regret. We're trying to be, we're trying to see the best games. We're trying to see the biggest teams. We're trying to see the highest-profile matchups. We're trying to see as many teams as possible. We're trying to get to as many regions as possible. But also, we're trying to see the best games as we possibly can. You want to have memories. You want to have good stories to bring back. I like to fill the offseason with stories that I can tell you from behind the scenes from the season. There aren't many good behind-the-scenes stories from a 45-10 blowout. So then I looked at week three. Week three, Bama goes down to Florida. That's the first time the Swamp's really going to be packed for a conference game since two years ago. It's a rotational conference game in the SEC. Bama does not go to Florida very often. They don't play in the regular season very often. So those are two heavyweights down there. But then at the same time, Auburn goes to Penn State. So that's another, it's kind of like Texas and Arkansas. That's kind of like Oregon at Ohio State, that's just a once-in-a-generation matchup. You don't get to see it. Those out-of-conference true road games, you don't get to see it. That's one I could be swayed on. I mean, I'm not completely sold on Alabama at Florida because think about what could happen there. I mean, what if Bama is a buzzsaw again this year? And what if, again, these are all hypotheticals. Let me stress in all caps because a lot of you misunderstood what I said the other night. These are not predictions. Your boy's not predicting games in May. I can promise you that. But what if... Bama were to win 38-13 in that game. Well, I don't think anyone's winning in Penn State-Auburn 38-13. So it may be 
a game played maybe at a lower level. You may not see a national championship caliber team on the field that day, but it could be a better game. Cincinnati plays at Indiana. That's a good one, too. And it really depends on what Indiana does at Iowa in week one. But I also think to myself, Cincinnati, if I really want to go see them, they got a couple of Friday games. And Cincinnati's not that far from where I am right now. So I could theoretically pull that off if I wanted to go see Cincinnati that bad. So I did take that into account. This week six slate, though, oh, it's bad. Okay, so we've got Bama at A&M. That's the one I picked. That, I think, is the biggest game in the SEC this year. At least in the preseason, I would rank it number one. Georgia plays at Auburn that day. Utah plays at USC that day. And that was one, before I ever looked at when it fell, that's when I told myself, I got to be at that one. I got to be at Utah, USC. I don't get to go out to Los Angeles very often for games. And that one, I think, may decide the Pac-12 South. Arizona State's going to have a lot to say about that. UCLA's there, too. But I thought, man, I want to get there. Well, lo and behold... It's on the same day as Georgia-Auburn, OU-Texas, Bama-A&M, Notre Dame, Virginia Tech, Penn State at Iowa. All these games, Utah at USC, are all on the same day. Now, here's the plan. Well, actually, I don't know if it's a plan, but I just floated it out there the other day. You know OU-Texas is going to be a noon Eastern kickoff. We know that. It happens every year. I didn't know that game was going to be on ABC this year, but I did know and do know that it's going to be a noon kickoff. So that's in Dallas. That's at the Cotton Bowl. That's about two and a half hours, two hours, 45 minutes up the road from College Station. CBS gets that primetime game every year. Normally, it's Bama LSU. Last year, it was Bama Georgia. We don't know which one it's going to be this year yet. I think that announcement will come pretty soon. I think it's going to be this game. I think it's going to be Bama at AM. Could it happen? Could it be that we're in a position to do OU Texas Red River Shootout? Don't let anyone tell you it's called anything different. Could we do that one at noon, scoot out of there really quick, jog to the car, get on the road, hit that interstate, and get down to College Station before kickoff of that game and pull a two-for-one and be at two of the biggest games in the country same day? Could that happen? Dot, 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 to be continued. we got to get the fine folks at CBS to uh, work in conjunction with us there. But those are some of the games that I'm really aggravated that i got to miss. There are some other ones like Week 5, Michigan at Wisconsin, I don't really know how big that game's going to be. Could be pivotal, or it could be one where you know Michigan loses to Washington in week two, and they're already kind of off the national radar. Wisconsin will have already had several big games by them. That's the third game in the first kind of four weeks or five weeks of the season where Wisconsin plays a really big opponent. I think they got Penn State, they got Notre Dame, and they got Michigan the first month or so of the season. So those are some games I'm looking at. I'll be very interested to hear from you guys because um, – I can be swayed. That's all I'm saying. I can be swayed off this. All right, Producer Jordan, you got this thing to cut up. Sorry for getting it out a little bit later than usual. It's been an abnormal day, but appreciate the patience nonetheless. Appreciate so much you guys listening. If you want to submit questions for the Thursday show, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, cannot stress it enough, at latekickjosh. Follow me on Twitter, cannot stress it enough, at latekickjosh. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day, and God bless. God bless.